welcome to episode 53 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your neat and sweet host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. Season 5 is still just beginning, and I have two more episodes for you. Episode 3, You Don't Have to Kill to Get Rich, But It Helps, and Episode 4, Pig in a Blanket. Let my train be a reminder that I record with the windows open now because I don't want to suffocate. I've given up my battle against any kind of ambient noises. Please just do your best to tolerate my absolute laziness. Okay, let's go to Hawaii. for you in just a shake. Well, you're not the bellhop. No, sir. Mr. Houston, I'm here to sell you some insurance. <laughs> well, I admire your push and shove, but you picked the wrong time. Now, if I was going to stay here for a while, I like your style. I'd give you a few pointers on how to sell. Mr. Houston, I'm selling something special. Blackmail insurance. Season 5, Episode 3, You Don't Have to Kill to Get Rich, But It Helps. Air date September 26, 1972, directed by Alf Kajelin. This is his third of seven episodes, and written by Abram S. Guinness. This is his second of three episodes. At an insurance meeting, the assembled people are discussing prospective clients. They decide that Wally Schuster is ideal. The man in question is sitting poolside with a beautiful woman. They flirt back and forth for a bit. Later at his hotel room, as he's packing to leave, one of the insurance men, Larry, comes in to sell him insurance. Schuster doesn't see the point since he's not staying. Turns out, it's blackmail insurance, and Larry has the pictures to prove it. Ben gets a teletype about a pretty girl from Atlanta. They want to know about her connection with a rich businessman from Atlanta who committed suicide a few months after coming home from Hawaii. Her pictures were in his possession, and they suspect blackmail. Turns out that 5 had a similar case in Hawaii with the same girl. We know that she's floating at the bottom of the ocean, but 5 is going to have to find that out for themselves. Safely back at home, Schuster keeps watch while his private detective buddy, Sam Tolliver, breaks into Arthur Jackson's locker at the country club and engages in some old-school identity theft by taking pictures of his IDs. Ben talks to Dolly, the madam, about the girl. After some prodding, Dolly admits she found the girl in Miami, but the girl wasn't interested in coming to Hawaii at the time. Dolly then saw her four months ago downtown. She told Dolly she had all the connections she needed— and Dolly never saw her again. Schuster meets Sam at the Dallas airport. He told Sam all about the blackmail, and Sam has decided to take it upon himself to get him out of the blackmail scheme. He's a private detective, and Schuster helped him out when he first started. Sam calls his wife before he leaves. Listening makes Schuster feel even more guilty. The blackmail people told him that they knew everything about his money and investments, and if he missed even one payment, they'd send the pictures to his wife and pastor. Sam plans to go undercover as big businessman Arthur Jackson and make all of the same stops that Schuster did, Chicago, San Francisco, and Hawaii, to see if he can attract their attention. 
Sam arrives in Hawaii, and while waiting for the car, he looks over a map of a room. It's the same map that Steve is looking over. Steve figures out that the blackmail pictures were taken with a hidden camera in a purse. Looks like Sam figured out the same thing. Chin is going to figure out who rigged the camera. Danny will look for the girl. Someone at a hotel might remember her. And Ben will check out the photoshops just in case. They're also going to flood the area with pictures of the girl. Sam is sitting poolside. A pretty girl asks him if he would mind putting some suntan lotion on her back. Sam obliges. The girl says she's there with a friend and calls over Maria. Sam's luckier than he thinks. Doc calls in with the missing girl, Karen Bell. Dead three or four days under the water. Drowned. She was found thanks to the strong currents and some coral divers after being dumped in the channel between Maui and Lanai. Steve wants to know how this one girl could know all about two businessmen from two different parts of the country and pull off the pictures and blackmail scheme. There's got to be someone pulling the strings, someone with a flock of girls. Karen Bell became a liability after the two suicides caused police investigations. This has to be a big operation for them to be able to know about the suicides and then have the girl professionally killed. Both men were wealthy mainland businessmen who had reputations to maintain at home. This operation has to be big and with the latest technology. They're going to start with companies with telex communications. A man with a lab coat and glasses explains to Danny just how telex works. Danny's got to go through 79 companies who use this telex to narrow it down to five. But the judge will only give them a warrant to tap the telex, not their private phones. Steve isn't happy with the judge's lack of cooperation, but they'll make it work. Meanwhile, Larry finds Sam at the beach and tells him that he's selling blackmail insurance. They go back to Sam's room to discuss it. Larry explains that the payments are $1,000 a month for life. He won't even miss it. Sam understands, but he can't oblige. He pulls a gun and threatens to kill Larry. Larry tries to tell him that even if he shoots him, that he'll never get away. There's security in the hotel, and his people still have the negatives. But Sam isn't going to kill him. He's been video recording him the whole time, and he wants to finish his picture show. In order to do that, he needs to know the name of Larry's boss. Larry doesn't want to talk, but he has to, because if Sam shows the tape to the police, he's dead. And if he shows it to the boss, he's double dead. Larry gives up his boss, Veritex, and CEO, William Spear. Thanks. Sam is going to mail off the tape for safekeeping, and then he and Larry are going to pay a visit to Mr. Spear. At the meeting, Sam introduces himself as their new partner. Only the third episode in this new season, we already have our second big, huge criminal enterprise that is actually quite brilliant. Blackmail insurance, absolutely brilliant. Because let's think about this. The setup is very simple. They research wealthy men, find out who's got the money, who's a very good candidate because they review someone else before they get to Schuster and they take him out because of his age because he's too old. So basically what they're saying is that he won't last long enough to make enough payments to make it worth their while. However, Schuster is in his mid forties. I look younger than he does. Thank you. And he would make a prime candidate. And so that's why they target him. Now here's the thing. So they they look into these people, they look into their financials, they look into the organizations they belong to, the churches they belong to, what kind of family they have, because that matters. That's where the pressure is for the blackmail. Because in 
inevitably these idiot men do not say no when they are approached by a young woman at the poolside. They are perfectly happy to go back and have a little Hawaiian fling and go home and never tell their wives, but probably brag to their buddies about this. It is so perfect as a scheme because, of course, they're not going to say no. Of course, they're going to think they're untouchable and justified in indulging since they're on vacation or whatever. So it's perfect. And then we have this wonderful insurance man, Larry, who is our very own Tommy Fujiwara, coming in and saying, hey, I'm going to sell you some insurance. It's blackmail insurance. So as long as you pay us whatever the amount is a month for life, we won't send these pictures to your wife, to your pastor, to your whatever. No one will have to know. So it really is a brilliant scheme. The problem is, is that they don't do, I think, enough of a psychological profile on their victims because we have two that succumb to the pressure and end up taking their own lives. And the problem with that is both of them have in their possession pictures with the same woman. That makes her a liability because suicides bring in police investigations Police investigations are going to ask questions because if these two men have pictures of the same woman or just of this woman, and that's clearly not their wife, then they're going to suspect blackmail. And that opens their business up to being discovered. So unfortunately for Karen Bell, that made her a liability and she had to be taken care of. Now, I do want to say this. You know me. I have a fascination with death and decay. I know how people decompose. When they're looking for this girl, we see flashes of her under the water. She's wearing a, a actually rather modest dress, and she has clearly been chained to a rock, and she's supposed to be on the bottom of the ocean floor. She is probably not that deep, given the sunlight, but whatever. We're not going to split hairs. Here's the thing. She was supposed to have been drowned, so that's really cruel. They just tied her to this rock and chucked her into the channel and let her drown. But she's supposed to have been under the water for like three or four days when they when they finally discovered her and pulled her out. Now, here's the thing. We don't actually see her corpse when Doc is explaining the circumstances to Steve. Her corpse is under a sheet, probably for the best. Because if you've been under the water for three or four days, my gosh, really, really unfortunate things happen. The decomposition still happens. Your interior gut flora turns on you. And starts digesting you from the inside out. That brings about the gases which cause you to bloat. And makes you very, very unpleasant. Particularly once you've been pulled out of the water in that state. You smell pretty awful. And you're likely to rupture. And some really nasty fluids will come out. That smells even worse. Also what they're not showing, at least in the underwater shots, is that um, there are fish that live in the ocean. And they will nibble on you. I'm not talking about like a shark coming by and like taking out a big bite or anything like that. They're just, there's a lot of little scavenger fish that will just be like, mm, gonna nibble on this nose. So not only would she have been really bloated and pretty unpleasant, their likelihood, her nose, probably her ears, probably her fingers, she would have bits of her nibbled on. And it would be really, really visually unpleasant. And so the fact that they're actually all standing in around her corpse in the morgue and no one is gagging just goes to show how little attention gets paid to certain sensory elements of storytelling. I apologize if you were eating at any time while I was talking about this poor girl's corpse. Anyway, Schuster, of course, falls into this trap. He goes home. 
and tells his private investigator buddy Sam all about it. And Sam comes up with this plan to follow the same route that's, that Schuster took under the guise of Arthur Jackson, this big-time rich guy. So it would be easy for them to track him down and whatnot and verify that he was worth the effort. And he's going to follow his Schuster's same track, and he's going to basically fall into the same plot, but know what the plot is, and he's going to turn the tables on him. That's the plan. So this plan, first of all, involves Sam committing a crime by breaking into some dude's locker, Arthur Jackson's locker, taking pictures of his ID, so stealing his identity without poor Arthur Jackson's knowledge, and traveling under a fake name, which you could do in 1972 because the security measures weren't quite as stringent back then. And he's going to go to Hawaii and he's going to hopefully be ensnared in this trap. Now, here's the thing. It's made very clear that Sam is a family man. He is married to his wife, Inez, and they have two children. Because Sam, I guess, leaves after a bit of an argument with his wife, but he calls her from the airport to make sure that they're made up and that she knows he loves her and all of this stuff. And we think, oh, this is just running home the guilt that Schuster feels about betraying his family. And here's the thing. I don't think he feels guilty about betraying his wife. I think he feels guilty about being caught at it because that's usually what happens. But the point is, is that kind of what you think that's going for at that moment. So later we see Sam at poolside and I feel this is the moment I should tell you that Sam Tolliver is played by William Shatner, the great William Shatner. So if you require shirtless Shatner in your life, you're going to want to watch this episode because he's shirtless a couple of times in it for actually several scenes, the poolside, the beach, and in his hotel room. Plenty of shirtless Shatner. Also, because he's from Dallas, he is affecting this southern accent that whenever I hear anybody do it, I just think of it as the generic big Texan accent. That's what it sounds like. I'm indebted to you, only everything I got, you know that. What was I in the army before we met? Nothing but a country boy MP. What was I when I got out? Nothing but a private detective rolling around motel alleys for them divorce dollars. You gave me my first industrial account, set me up with all those corporate retainers. I'm indebted to you, Wally. You're in trouble, boy. I'm going to get you out. That's the truth. It's absolutely magnificent. 10 out of 10, no notes. Anyway, so we see Sam at the poolside. He's approached by this woman who is sitting next to him, but she's having trouble getting her back lotioned up because she burns so easily. And so Sam offers to help. And then she says that she has a friend. When the friend comes over, it's another beautiful woman. And the implication of this is that for Sam to be lured into this trap and have the trap sprung, that he would have to go back to his hotel room with this woman. Now, here's the thing. This is the plan. This is all part of his plan. Because the point is they would have to get pictures so they would feel confident enough to try to sell him the blackmail insurance. So this means that Sam more than likely went back to his room with this woman and her friend and then proceeded to engage in a three-way to effectively spring this trap. I wonder if Inez knew anything about this, but he knew this going in. He knew that this is what he was going to have to do, and I guess he would justify it by saying that it was all for Schuster and to help Schuster out. 
But oh my gosh, that was his plan. That was his plan. That's the only way this plan works. The only way this plan works is if he is photographed in a compromising position with either one or both of these women. Fabulous. You never saw this on Magnum P.I. So the, the plan actually works in Sam's favor because Larry approaches him on the beach to sell him some blackmail insurance and they go back to Sam's room. Now, here's the thing. I know we like to joke about William Shatner's acting ability and he does have the dramatic pauses in some of his dialogue, which is fabulous. You live for that. It's Shatner. But he's actually, I think, a better actor than a lot of people want to give him credit for because he has become such of a such an icon and so known for certain quirks. So when he's approached by Larry on the beach and Larry says, do you want to talk about this out in the open? Do you want to go back to your room? Shatner looks like what Sam would look like if he was actually caught in this trap. He looks sick. He looks completely concerned and upset. But the thing is, as soon as Larry turns and starts to walk away, his face morphs from that sick, oh no look to a smug, I got you look. And he does it again when they're in the room because they're sitting across from each other and Larry's explaining how blackmail insurance works and Chatner is sitting over there. So Sam's sitting over there still looking sick. He looks, he looks really upset about this, really concerned about this. And when he says, I'm sorry, I can't oblige you and pulls out that gun. Again, you have that beautiful morphine of, I got you. And we're thinking, because you don't think to look behind the sheer curtain, we're thinking, holy shit, this is getting serious. Uh, Mr. Jackson, uh, aren't you being a little hasty? I mean, sure, sure, you got a gun, but, uh, you know, you can't use it. Why not? What's, what's, the, what's the point? I mean, you, you, you pull a trigger, I'd kill you. <laughs> look, that's just the point. They, uh, look, there's security police all over the hotel. You'd be exposed. Look, even, even, even if you destroy the photos, my, my people still have the negatives. Hey, you don't, you don't understand, boy. It's Larry. You don't understand, Larry, boy. This gun ain't meant to kill you. This gun is meant to keep your rotten hands off this machine. I ask you to take that seat off, or you, Larry, boy. Videotape. My own little picture show. And he's kind of, in a sense, doing a one-up on Larry and Veritex when he pulls back that curtain and reveals the video camera. This is a 1972 video camera, so I don't know a whole lot about video technology from back in the day, but it's probably one of those newer models. It looks like it's probably like top-of-the-line new tech stuff, and because that fits with the rest of the episode of everything being very high-tech about this, this blackmail insurance company using telex and computers to gather their information on these people. It plays out kind of like a one-up. And he's smart. Sam is smart. It looks very smart in that he says he's going to mail that tape. That means no one can get it while he's gone. There's no risk of anybody trying to force him to turn it over. He can't. It's being mailed. And he doesn't say to whom the tape is being mailed, but it's safe because the U.S. Postal Service has it. And then he tells Larry that they're going to go talk to William Spear. And the meeting goes really interestingly in that 
Sam walks in with full confidence. Now he is in a room of people who have devised this blackmail scheme and who use the latest technology to execute this scheme. But he goes in with full confidence and it's kind of a swerve because he introduces himself as their new partner and he claims he wants 25% and that he will work for his money. He'll work for his cut because clearly all of the computers and technology they're using isn't as good as an old-fashioned gumshoe because here he is pretending to be this other person and they didn't even know. Their computer didn't tell them that, that he wasn't the real Arthur Jackson. He makes a very confident pitch and it's full Shatner swagger. It's beautiful. Yeah, I got a feeling I could raise the performance level around here half again as much. So my asking for 25% of the profit ain't so bad now, is it? Would you care to tell us a little bit about yourself before we... Uh... I'm a man on the rise, Mr. Spear, like uh, Mr. Arthur Jackson. A man on the rise, seizing his opportunity, like they teach you in those fancy business schools. Only I got to do this in my own way, on account of I never been to none. And my own way is hard work, pile right in. So the, the sooner you show me the ropes around here, the sooner I can make my contribution. But what's brilliant about this is that you think he's got him. You think this, except he's dealing with people who use the latest technology to get what they want. What do they do? They reach out to their contacts in Dallas because it's already been established that they have contacts everywhere. That's the only way they could have been up to date on these two businessmen's suicides happening, one in Hawaii and one in Atlanta, pertaining with the same girl. They have to have contacts everywhere. So they reach out to their contacts in Dallas and they also take the ashtray that Sam had used because Spear had slid it across the desk. He had to reach over and grab it to pull it closer to him. They get the fingerprints from that and run his fingerprints to find out who he is. And this is all on the word of one of the executives, Joyce, the only woman in the room. She is the kind of their psychological evaluator right there because she listens to Sam's whole spiel. And after he leaves, she gives her impression, her impressions of Sam to Spear. Do you uh, read him as a loner or someone who uses help? I read him as a professional, alone when possible, uses help if he has to. And he'd know where to get it. Hmm. And his next move for the negatives, then to eliminate me. Or vice versa, if that's the only way to get the negatives. That's how they know how to attack them. So it's that plus finding out who he is. Because they're not going to take this line down. They're not going to give up 25%. They all know in that room that the goal is the negatives. That's where the money is. Meanwhile, we have the 5-0 investigation in on this. We have them looking into trying to identify who this girl is. And that involves Ben going to a known madam by the name of Dolly, who is magnificent, I aspire to her fashion sense, truly. I should have a picture of her up on my blog in regards to this episode because she's magnificent. I love her because she she takes no shit from Ben. None. But she is straight with him. And I just, I love her. I just, I have aspirations to be something like a cross between Dolly and Joyce. Just my path lies in the middle of there. Anyway. Once 5 realizes that this scheme has to be bigger than just Karen Bell, that they have to not only have a flock of girls so they can get rid of one and it's not a problem, 
but also connections everywhere so they can be informed of what their blackmail insurance clients are up to. This is a huge thing. And so they will need the latest in technology in order to pull this off. So we get to learn all about Telex, which involves cables and satellites and computers and telephone lines. It is magnificent. I think it's basically email before email. And in order to narrow our field down, poor Danny gets stuck going through all 79 companies in Hawaii that uses Telex and they narrow it down to five. And from there, Steve gets the court order in order to tap their telexes, but not their home phones. The judge thinks that's an overreach. But the telexes pay off because Danny has been monitoring the telexes and they managed to like inadvertently like catch some other shit going on like a bookmaker. But they end up getting turned on to Veritex. And... The Veritex telex is coded, but they figure it out what they're talking about. They get that information. That's what leads to them getting the court order for the phone tap for telex, every telex employee and their business phones and personal phones. That's a lot. And that gets them to Sam because they hear the phone call with Sam organizing a meeting. When Steve finds out about Sam, he looks into Sam and finds out that he is a private detective. I think he's really offended that Sam didn't stop in and say hello and say, hey, I'm doing business here. So Chin is the one who overhears the phone call between Spear and Tulliver setting up their meeting. And then they have also tapped Sam's hotel phone at this point because he's somehow involved. They just don't know how. And they overhear a phone call of Sam calling someone in Chicago because he needs a reference for a, quote, doctor because a friend is, in quotes, sick. And they need a specialist. It's urgent. So they need a local specialist. Can you tell what's being hinted at? Sam is is calling his friend in Chicago to help him arrange a hit. He's going to take out Spear. Because that is the only way he can make sure that, that his friend Schuster is free of this blackmail. Is to take out Spear and get the negatives. Because 5 overhears this. They know what Sam is looking for. And they also know who Sam is looking for. It's a local guy. So they know, hmm, hitman. But they are also an advantage because Sam doesn't know who this guy is because he's a local guy. And so Sam, when he goes to meet with the hitman, ends up meeting with Ben. And then both Sam's and Five-O's plans end up going sideways because like I said, Spear and his corporation are good at what they do. <laughs> You know who else is good at what they do? This guest cast. So let's talk about them. As I said, Sam Tolliver was played by William Shatner, probably best known as Captain James T. Kirk on the original Star Trek. He was also Sergeant T.J. Hooker on T.J. Hooker. He was also David Coster on For the People. Jeff Cable on Barbary Coast. Walter H. Bascom on Tech War. The Storyteller on A Twist in the Tale. Denny Crane on Boston Legal, Dr. Edison Milford Goodson III on Shit My Dad Says, and he was the host of Rescue 911. 
He also appeared in episodes of Thriller, Naked City, Twilight Zone, 77 Sunset Strip, Route 66, Burke's Law, Man from Uncle, 12 O'Clock High, The Fugitive, Big Valley, Dr. Kildare, Gunsmoke, Mannix, The Virginian, FBI, The Sixth Sense, Mission Impossible, Marcus Welby, MD, The Bold Ones, The New Doctors, Barnaby Jones, Ironside, The Six Million Dollar Man, Kung Fu, Police Surgeon, Police Story, Police Woman, Police Squad, The Rookies, Columbo, The Practice, Psych, Hot in Cleveland, and The Big Bang Theory. He appeared in the movies Devil's Revenge, Loaded Weapon 1, A Sunday Horse, A Christmas Horror Story, Fanballs, Dodgeball, A True Underdog Story, Miss Congeniality 1 and 2, Visiting Hours, Land of No Return, Kingdom of the Spiders, The Devil's Reign, Amazing, Big Bad Mama, and Incubus. And he appeared in the TV movies The Andersonville Trial, The People, Incident on a Dark Street, Go Ask Alice, The Horror at 37,000 Feet, Indict and Convict, Disaster on the Coastliner, cannot recommend that one enough, Amazing, The Babysitter, Secrets of a Married Man, Family of Strangers, and Falcon Down. William Spear was played by Rick Marlowe. This is his second of five episodes. He was also in Bait Once, Bait Twice. He was the short shorts assassin. As I said, Larry was played by Tommy Fujiwara. This is his ninth of 24 episodes. Wally Schuster was played by Bill Edwards. This is his third of 17 episodes. We also saw him in Highest Castle, Deepest Grave. And Didn't We Meet at a Murder? Joyce Hensley was played by Wisa Diorzo. This is her first of five episodes. She also appeared in Magnum P.I., The Ed Sullivan Show, and The Dean Martin Summer Show. Dolly was played by Jory Remus. This is her second of six episodes. We also saw her in Pray, Love, Remember, Pray, Love, Remember. Girl number one was Aletha Aguilar. This is her third of five episodes. We also saw her in One for the Money and Most Likely to Murder. And girl number two was Charlene Silva. She also appeared in the movie North Shore. And that is You Don't Have to Kill to Get Rich, But It Helps. I really enjoyed this episode because you know me, I like big plans. This blackmail insurance scheme is just brilliant. It's a lot of fun. And you had the added bonus of William Shatner being the one to try to bring this corporation down. It was some very questionable means to do it. I mean, he committed like a felony the first time we saw him and he finished with another felony. It's interesting watching how 5.0 puzzles this one out. We get to learn something about Telex, which I have very limited knowledge of, and it ends in a very tense way. If you look quick, you'll see James MacArthur's stunt double sporting some really fabulous hair. I just, you'll know it when you see it. It's magnificent, so... You're going to want to give this one a watch. I've known you too long, Dolly. You're lying. So are you, cop. He was on his way home. Stopped a guy in a routine moving violation. Doper with a load. Where's the doper? Down the hall. Another ward. He'll recover. Excuse me, gentlemen. Chuck's wife here? In the waiting room with his father. mistake as i remember you owe him a lot more than that episode four pig in a blanket air date october 3rd 1972 directed by marvin j chomsky this is his third of three episodes 
and written by Bill Stratton. This is his third of 16 episodes. There's some hot bowling action. Danny and his friend Chinoa Olena celebrate winning their game. Chinoa puts on his uniform in too much of a hurry to cash in on the steak dinner Danny promised him. He hurries out to his car, calls in for any messages, and then spots a reckless driver. The chase is on, but once in the hills, the car pulls over. Chinoa asks for the driver's license. It only gets him shot by the driver. The car speeds away, and even while wounded, Chinoa manages to shoot out the tire and wound the driver. Danny watches over his friend in the hospital. The guy who shot him is down the hall. Danny flashes back to an incident in which he was wrestling with a man with a knife and Chinoa saved his life by shooting the guy. He's brought back to reality by Chinoa flatlining. The medical staff rushes to save him, but after over an hour, they call it. The nurse pulls the blanket over Chinoa. Danny's friend is gone. Steve arrives with Chinoa's wife, and Danny comforts her, promising that he's only five minutes away. Steve and Danny then watch as Chinoa's body is taken out of his room, Danny lamenting his friend's death. Down the hall, the guy who shot Chinoa is high on heroin and anesthetic. That crash is going to suck. Danny comes in and informs him that Chinoa died. He's fine with that because it wasn't a man, it was a cop. It's all part of the game, getting high, evading the cops and the narcs. Danny doesn't appreciate his bullshit and rattles the bed, causing a little pain for our shooter, but he just laughs, though. It's all a game. There's a football game on at a bar. Danny and Ben are having a drink. Danny is clearly nursing his feelings, and Ben is doing his best to comfort him. Breaking news interrupts the game to report to Noah's death, and a drunk at the bar openly doesn't care. His only concern is the football game. Danny goes and stands in front of the TV, provoking him. When the drunk threatens violence, Ben interrupts, distracting the drunk with the game and getting Danny out of there. He tries to take Danny for some coffee, but Danny decides to go for a walk instead. He's clearly distracted, thinking about Chinoa's death. When he gets to his car, he sees a squad pull up to a pharmacy with a robbery in progress. The masked robber uses the clerk as a hostage to get the cops to drop their guns, and everybody gets locked in the back room. Danny attempts to stop the thief as he leaves, but the thief makes it to his car. Danny gives chase on his own. He follows a car he thinks is the thief and radios in the license plate. He follows the car as it pulls into a driveway back up on the way. The guy gets out of the car and Danny tells him to stop. The guy looks like he's going to shoot, so Danny shoots him first. When Danny runs up to him, he finds a kid and no gun. While Ricky lays dying in the driveway, his brother Harold has some strong words for Danny. At the hospital, while the same doc who tried to save Chinoa tries to save Ricky, Steve asks for answers. And the answers seem to point that Danny was wrong. Danny admits that he'd had some drinks, he was looking for a fight, and he was glad when that kid turned and aimed at him. Steve doesn't buy that. But maybe Danny isn't the man he thinks he is. Okay, let me get my hang-ups with this episode out of the way so I can discuss it like a rational human being. We all know that I adore cop shows. 70s cop shows in particular are my jam. I've watched a lot of them. I seek out new ones to enjoy. It's my thing. But I also know what copaganda is. And all cop shows are copaganda. The purpose of copaganda is to normalize the behaviors of the police and to paint them as heroes when reality tells a different tale. Now, I am wise to a lot of the copaganda methods and types of episodes because I've watched so many cop shows, but there is one genre of episode 
that I absolutely dislike. And it is what I call in the line of duty. And it typically plays out that there is a uniformed officer that we have never seen before and will never be mentioned again, because this kind of episode was really popular in the 70s. And it's usually a buddy of one of our favorites. He ends up getting killed in the line of duty. And it's usually by someone who is either an outspoken cop hater or failing that there will be someone in the episode who is an outspoken cop hater, or there will be both. In this episode, we definitely have both. The purpose of this style of episode is really, really emotionally manipulative in that what it's trying to do is show just how dangerous and how deadly having a police job is and the dangers that law enforcement face and how people hate them and how derided they are and not respected. It gives a lot of energy of like a certain subset of Christians who want nothing more than to be oppressed and act like they're very oppressed when really they have the power. And this is the same thing. This is an episode that's trying to convince you that being a police officer is the most dangerous job in the world and they just don't get the respect for it. They lay their lives on the line every day for the public. They are the only thing standing between us and a lawless society. And none of that is true. I am not saying that a pol- that police work is, does not come with some inherent dangers. I know. My dad was a cop for 25 years in a small town. And he actually had his knee broken during a domestic violence call. And then the guy later apologized for it because that's life in a small town. But if you look at the most dangerous jobs in the country, police work doesn't make the top 10. And on a lot of lists, it doesn't make the top 25. And I don't think that was much different in 1972 than it is now. Furthermore, police kill far more people than they themselves are killed in the line of duty. So while their job may have some dangers, the odds tend to be in their favor. The other thing about the killed in the line of duty statistics, it kind of gives the impression, especially with episodes like this, that most of the officers who die in the line of duty are killed in shootouts or in traffic stops when they walk up and someone just shoots them. That's actually not the case. Particularly with traffic stops, a cop is more likely to be hit by another vehicle while they're giving the ticket than by anybody in the car. We actually have a law here in Illinois for that because it happens so frequently. Frankly, I think that would have made a much more interesting episode if Chinoa was out giving a ticket and he was struck down by another motorist than by what we got. But nobody consulted with me because I hadn't been born yet. So I already dislike this episode just based on that. And it has absolutely nothing to do necessarily with the story or acting or anything, anything objective. It's just me and my personal preferences and that I just do not like this particular genre of propaganda. But that is the setup for this episode. And we do meet Chinoa and he is a very groovy dude. I am really sorry to see him get shot down. I love the fact that he totally took out the car while laying there wounded on the road. That's dedication to Sparkle Motion right there. So we know that when Chinoa is in his room, we know that he's seriously wounded, whereas we know the driver or the shooter is down the hallway and he's not as seriously wounded and is going to make it. Chinoa goes into cardiac arrest. The team does everything they can to save him. And it is a brutal scene to watch because we're actually seeing a lot of the life-saving measures that they're doing. It's brutal to watch, especially through Danny's eyes. And then to have to call it and he didn't make it, 
And we see Danny's reaction to that. And we also have to have that flashback of how Genoa had saved Danny's life because we have no other connection to him other than seeing him bowl with Danny. So we have, we need to have this flashback of him saving Danny's life to make him matter even more. And then we also have the knowledge that this shooter is alive down the hallway and Danny goes to see him. And this shooter is like in outer space. He is feeling no pain and because he's high on heroin and the anesthetic. And I'm like, I don't even know how they did that for you, sir, but good on you. And that crash is going to suck. But he is one of the stereotypical cop haters calling him pigs and whatever. You see it in every one of these episodes. It's dull. I didn't kill a man. I chopped a cop, put a pig in a blanket. But of course, it, it really affects Danny because he just lost his friend. And I mean, the dude's kind of obnoxious. I wouldn't be like totally opposed if he didn't like put a pillow over his face just to shut him up. But he doesn't. He rattles the bed and that's enough to kind of inflict a little bit of pain on, on this guy who is high as a kite. And Danny ends up leaving very unsatisfied. It goes to the bar with Ben. And this is actually, I think, a brilliant piece of storytelling, even though I don't care for this kind of episode. Because we have to have them lamenting about Chinoa's death and about how cops are killed every day and all of this crap. We have to have that statistic and just kind of ignore the fact that they kill more people than are killed and they don't really have the most dangerous job. And that, like I said, the most dangerous calls to go on are domestic violence calls or doing traffic stops and getting hit by another car. It's not necessarily gun violence. We have this happening at the table because we have to give those statistics so we can have that framework for how badly you should feel about ever being pissy about getting a traffic ticket. And this guy, of course, we have to have another one who very loudly does not care that Chinoa died. And so Danny provokes him. Danny is looking for a fight. He's had some drinks. He's looking for a fight. And he goes and he stands in front of the television blocking the view of this football game. For a routine well, ain't that a shame. He leaves behind a widow and a young son. Did they get the first down? So, as Baltimore calls timeout, the question becomes, can the old pro, Johnny Unitas, pull another one out? It won't be easy. Here is the situation. In a hey, second you. and 20, at the Baltimore 40, the Baltimore... The curly dude in his suit. Sit down. So what will you I'm watching the game. With now? We'll see in just a moment. You're gonna need some help. You're gonna help me? Well, I was gonna wait till the United commercials. But if your dentist needs the work... Hey, buddy, you better leave. Yeah. you're obliterating our view. Yeah, you must dig pain. Hey, we were just, just leaving. Hey, look, they're going after the field goal. The line is set, Jim O'Brien ready. Ball is snapped, kick is up. And good! And it's great because this dude is drunk. He's like another couple of drinks and being on his bar stool is going to be a challenge. And so it's pretty easy for Ben to go, oh, hey, look, I think they made the first down and get Danny out of there. I think that was that's a kind of a great way to illustrate where Danny's head is. That while he has all of this grief, his grief is manifesting mostly as anger. Anger that his friend is dead. Anger that the shooter is alive. Anger that nobody seems to care that his friend is dead. Anger about feeling so disrespected. That little bit tells you a lot about what's going on inside of Danny. He leaves. He declines Ben's invitation for coffee. And he goes for a walk. I think he takes a long way to his car. 
And when he gets to his car, he sees a squad come screaming up in front of a pharmacy because there's a robbery in progress. And we see when the cops go inside, there's this dude with a mask. He's got the clerk as a hostage. He shoves everybody. He gets the, the cops to drop their guns. He shoves everybody in the back room and he leaves. And Danny tries to stop him on the sidewalk. And he gives chase to the dude. I think shots are fired. Nobody's hit. He ch gives chase on foot, but he ends up losing this guy. And then he thinks he sees the car go screeching away. So he jumps in his car, follows after it, and radios it in. And there's a police chase. And it ends in a driveway because, obviously, that's home base. And the kid gets out of the car as Danny pulls up. When Danny hollers at him to halt, he turns and it looks like he's in a squat and he looks like he has something in his hand and it's it's deliberately done in shadow. So you can't quite see what the kid has in his hand and it could be a gun. And so Danny fires and hits him and it turns out to be a kid. It's like a 17 year old kid and he has a soldering gun, not an actual weapon. And so Danny has now made this huge mistake. And the mom comes running out, and the brother comes out, and the brother, of course, is accusing him of, of being a murderer. Well, what are we listening to him for? He's just got to keep up a body count. Isn't that right, Stormtrooper? Don't you just get a bonus for the amount of people you kill? If my dad were alive, he would rip your head off. Danny has told them both to go call for an ambulance, and neither one of them do. And I'm like, could you maybe, I don't know, stow your anger for like two seconds and go call the, for an ambulance? And then you can come out while you're waiting for the ambulance to get there. You can tell Danny what a piece of shit he is. Come on. I mean, let's have some priorities here. Cop hating needs some priorities. But anyway, it looks very much like Danny's made a big mistake. Well, you know what? He did. And I will tell you what that mistake was. First of all, he was off duty and he had had some drinks. He had tried to stop this thief and he failed. He never should have done a pursuit. He should have radioed in the make and model of the car that he thought it was, but he should not have given chase. Partially because he's been drinking, but partially because that's just really crappy police procedure, especially when you're off duty. You're off duty. This is not your responsibility. His responsibility should have been to the people that were in the pharmacy. He should have gone in and let them out of the back room because those are the people that are going to have the description of our guy because it's not worth whatever he stole. It's not worth anyone's life. So yeah, just bozo move on Danny's part. But we do know that aside from the alcohol, he was not in his right mind about this. He was sporting for a fight and he admits that to, to Steve at the hospital. You know how the newspapers will play this? Detective gets revenge. Chinook died. I had a couple of drinks. Looking for a fight. Finally, I found one. And just maybe it's true. Not you, Dano. I know my man. Steve, seriously, my, my reflex is flipped out. I don't buy that. You're a cop with 10 years proven instincts. 10 years of discipline. You couldn't squeeze a trigger in revenge. No matter what happened. Steve, I was glad. When he turned and aimed at me, I was glad. No way. Not you. Never. Danny actually tries to, to hand over his badge and his gun, and Steve refuses to take it. Here's the thing. Steve's actually kind of in the wrong here. Steve should have taken his badge and his gun. Danny should have been suspended. With or without pay, probably with pay, because that's how these things go. But... He 100% absolutely should have been off duty. And that actually didn't happen until they're confronted by a group of reporters later. 
while they're conducting the investigation into the robbery and into Danny's shooting of this kid. And under that questioning, because there is a recurring theme throughout the throughout the series that the media is very hard on Steve, very, very quick to come down on any mistake that he makes, which is a departure from the media currently as of this reporting in 2023, where they're more than happy to carry the cop's narrative. They use very soft language when in anything involving law enforcement. But in the Hawaii Five-0 universe, the media is very hard on Steve. And so they are willing to jump all over Danny about this, especially considering Danny, this is not the first person that Danny shot and has come under fire for. And it's during this that he admits that he was in the wrong and gives his gun, forces Steve to take his gun and his badge, which is what should have been done while they were conducting this investigation. I think Steve was a little bit sentimental on his little Danny boy and let that cloud his judgment a little bit. But 5-0 is dedicated to doing this investigation, not only to because Steve believes in his heart that they want to clear Danny, but they also want to find the person who robbed this pharmacy. And the investigation is interesting because the car did not have the mask, didn't have any gun, did not have any money in it. So they're kind of at a loss. But they focus on Ricky and his family just to like 100% rule them out of having anything to do with this to prove that it's completely 100% a mistake. Obviously, Harold, the brother, is really busy about this. But the mother seems a little more understanding, but she's going through an incredibly hard time. Her 17-year-old son was shot by a cop. He may be paralyzed. He might die. This is a very stressful time for her. So she only has so much patience. But 5-0 conducts their investigation, trying to find this thief and trying to exclude the family from any involvement in this. So this involves them following leads and trying to determine if Ricky could have ditched the gun, the money, and the mask. This involves them talking to witnesses and canvassing the route that Danny drove. And they find that someone heard a car stop and then pull out really fast by a Goodwill box. So Chin is the one who is sent to go look in this Goodwill box to see if anything got ditched. It leads to a pretty funny scene in the sense that we have these two people that come up that just see this guy in a suit raiding this Goodwill box. And they're being really judgmental about it. And when they find out that he's a cop, they're not any less judgmental about it. And I guess it's, again, supposed to illustrate how police don't get any respect for their work. But it still just plays pretty funny. But Chin does find the gun and the mask and the money. They can't find a whole lot of usable forensic evidence. But they get a break. Because after the surgeries and everything, Ricky is waking up. And Steve goes to talk to him. He questions him with his mother present. And he asks if he robbed the pharmacy. And he swears to his mother that he didn't. And he's telling the truth about that. But one of the answers he gives Steve tips him off to who the actual thief is. Might not be a big fan of this episode, but I am a big fan of this guest cast. So let's take a closer look at them. Harold was played by John Rubenstein. This is his first of two episodes. He has 227 credits going back to 1967 on IMDb. He was Jeff Maitland on Family and Harrison Fox on Crazy Like a Fox. 
He also appeared in episodes of Dragnet 67, The Virginian, Ironside, The Bold Ones, The Protectors, The Mod Squad, Cannon, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Policewoman, Barbary Coast, The Rookies, Harry O, Barnaby Jones, Wonder Woman, Vegas, Quincy M.E., Trapper John M.D., Emerald Point N.A.S., Love Boat, Fantasy Island, Jake and the Fat Man, Hotel, Matlock, Father Dowling Mysteries, Murder, She Wrote, Frasier, Robocop, Star Trek Voyager, and Star Trek Enterprise, Early Edition, Diagnosis Murder, Party of Five, The Practice, Any Day Now, the West Wing, Judging Amy, Angel, Without a Trace, Charmed, 24, Strong Medicine, NCIS, Becker, The Parkers, The Closer, Barbershop, Law and Order, Law and Order SVU, Cold Case, Criminal Minds, Girlfriends, Daybreak, Eli Stone, Supernatural, Brothers and Sisters, Numbers, The Young and the Restless, The Wizards of Waverly Place, Bones, The Mentalist, CSI, Perception, Legends of Tomorrow, This Is Us, Mom, Young Sheldon, The Orville, 911, and Claws. He appeared in the movies Being the Ricardos, Daddy, The Atticus, Institute, Hello, I Must Be Going, The Candlelight Murders, Jekyll, 21 Grams, Mercy, Another Stakeout, Daniel, The Boys from Brazil, The Car, and Getting Straight. And he appeared in the TV movies Howling in the Woods, Something Evil, All Together Now, Happily Ever After, She's Dressed to Kill, The Silent Lovers, Killjoy, Skokie, Voices Within, The Lives of Trudy Chase, In My Daughter's Name, 919 Fifth Avenue, and Still Crazy Like a Fox. Mrs. Klein was played by Louise Latham. She was Martha Higgins on Sarah and Louise Daughtry on Hot House. She also appeared in episodes of The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Perry Mason, Mr. Novak, Ben Casey, The Invaders, The Fugitive, Family Affair, The FBI, Bonanza, Ironside, McLeod, Longstreet, Cannon, The Streets of San Francisco, Heck Ramsey, Kojak, Columbo, Gunsmoke, Rhoda, Medical Center, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Waltons, Quincy M.E., Eight is Enough, Chips, Family, with John Rubenstein, Highway to Heaven, Designing Women, Rock, Murder, She Wrote, Earth 2, ER, and The X-Files. She appeared in the movies Love Field, Paradise, Mass Appeal, 92 in the Shade, The Sugarland Express, White Lightning, Making It, and Marnie. And she was in the TV movies Sweet Sweet Rachel, Savage, Dying Room Only, Tell Me Where It Hurts, Winter Kill, The Ghost of Cypress Swamp, In the Matter of Karen and Quinlan, The Ghosts of Buxley Hall, Thin Ice, Obsessive Love, and The Haunted. And she was in the miniseries In Cold Blood, Fresno, Cruel Doubt, The Contender, Scruples, The Awakening Land, and McNaughton's Daughter. Culpepper was played by Dennis Redfield. This is his first of two episodes. He was Roger Larson on Dallas. He also appeared in episodes of Medical Center, The New People, Room 222, The Streets of San Francisco, Kung Fu, Cannon, Emergency, The Rookies, Mannix, Ironside, Gunsmoke, Perio, Visions, The Man from Atlantis, Lou Grant, The Waltons, Aftermash, Highway to Heaven, Falcon Crest, St. Elsewhere, Hooperman, and Hearts of Fire. He appeared in the movies Turbulence, Problem Child 1 and 2, Going Under, Pulse, The Annihilators, Dead and Buried, Moving Violation, Summer Run, and The Unholy Powers. He appeared in the TV movies State Fair, Two Kinds of Love, The Midnight Hour, Armed and Innocent, and Lethal Vows. And he appeared in the miniseries Family Album and Fatal Vision. Ricky Klein was played by James A. Simpson. This is his first of two episodes. 
Chinoa Elena was played by Frank Atienza. This is his second of two episodes. We also saw him in Savage Sunday. Dr. Natnoa was played by Seth Sakai. This is his fifth of 23 episodes. Rona Alina was played by Alyssa Fuentes. This is her, her first of two episodes. Jack, the drunk at the bar, was played by Robert M. Luck. This is his seventh of 12 episodes. Nurse Tofu was played by E. Lynn Kimoto. This is her first of five episodes. She also appeared in the TV movie, The Little People. The bartender was played by Edward M. Schonk. This is his first of three episodes. Nurse Brickford was played by Tuuliki Paananen. This is her second of three episodes. We also saw her in Death Watch. Aaron was played by Howard Gottschalk. This is his third of six episodes. Gene was played by Richard Villard. This is his first of five episodes. He also appeared in the movies Grass Eater, How to Succeed with Girls, and Inferno in Paradise. And Tad was played by George Groves. This is his second of five episodes. We also saw him in Nightmare Road. And that is Pig in a Blanket. Outside of my own hangups about this, this is actually a pretty good episode of watching Danny go through it. And also how emphatic Danny is about taking responsibility for his actions. He is willing to take whatever punishment comes his way for what he's done because he knows he was in the wrong. Now, the way this episode plays out and the, the conclusion that it reaches is logical, only given in the sense that Danny has to be absolved in some form, that he can't be 100% wrong. And when you have this amount of cop hating in the episode, then obviously a cop hater has to be responsible for Danny's behavior in a sense. I personally don't think Danny would have gone to jail for the shooting because that so rarely happens anyway, but I do think he should have been punished. I don't know if he would have been punished. Probably not. But even though the ending of the episode absolves him of a little bit of responsibility, it doesn't totally negate it. So though, even though I have my personal hangups with episodes like this, and that makes it very difficult for me to like an episode like this, it's not a bad episode. It's definitely one I think you should give a watch. I'm calling the police. Look, lady, I am the police. And that is episode 53 of Book of Medano. Two pretty different episodes. I mean, we've got an ingenious, large-scale blackmail insurance scheme in one that's a lot of fun. And then we have the much more serious episode of a cop being killed in the line of duty and Danny going through the emotional ringer in the other one. It makes for a rather jarring pairing. But I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. You know I always appreciate your ears. And thank you for being so patient with all of the background noises. I swear, because my house was quiet for once while I recorded, every train, truck, and car had to make their presence known in my vicinity. These outside noises will go away when I have to finally shut the windows because it's too cold. But while it's still warm, we're going to put up with them. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookham Dano. You can also find me on my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. 
do check out the Patreon. I've got a whole new book on Dan O'Tier that gets you access to the episodes a couple of weeks ahead of everybody else. And if you want to keep up with my hangups in real time, you can do that by following me at Blue Sky if you can't follow me on Twitter at Kiki Writes. So make sure your insurance premiums are paid on time. And take your friend up on that steak dinner. Until next time. Aloha.